if there's a single definition of healing, it is to look with mercy and awareness on those pains, both mental and physical, that we have dismissed in judgment and dismay. And I'll say that again. If there is a single definition of healing, it is to look with mercy and awareness at those pains, both mental and physical, that we have dismissed in judgment and dismay. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to episode 31 of Contemplate This. I am your host, Tom Bushlag, and I'm joined in this episode by Dr. Matt Mumber. Dr. Mumber is a board-certified radiation oncologist and a graduate of the Living School from Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation, where Matt also studied very closely with uh, Uncle Jim Fimley, who many of our listeners are probably likely to know. Dr. Mumber most recently published a collection of poetry which draws on his personal, professional, cultural, and natural world experiences, which also stems from his practice of Lexio Divina meditation, which is a form of prayerful reading and meditation with scripture and his spiritual practice. He's also published both academic and popular or trade books on wellness and integrative medicine. Matt's story is a perfect example of how the contemplative journey can help us to integrate our personal faith and spirituality with our profession and other creative pursuits and in our relationships. He recounts all the different teachers and encounters, including some profound experiences of healing in nature and mentorship he had with a First Nations medicine man where he learned how to offer sweat lodges, all of which have led him to integrate the modern science of medicine with the ancient arts of contemplation and healing. Whatever your spiritual practice, background, or profession, you're definitely going to find a lot to inspire your contemplative journey within Matt's story. So you can find more about Matt and his poetry and his books on integrative medicine on the show notes page, which you can go directly to at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 31. That's the word episode 31 with no spaces. Matt is a great example of how staying centered and grounded in a contemplative practice keeps him alive and engaged in his career and staying connected with a spiritual healing divine energy that he is able to offer back to his patients. Now, for those of you who might be struggling with feeling constantly overwhelmed by the pace of modern life, balancing career with your spiritual practice, with family and self-care in the midst of our current cultural tensions, I'd also like to invite you to check out the link that you'll find on the show notes page to schedule a free breakthrough session with me. I've recently begun offering these sessions where I'll help you get really clear on what challenges are preventing you from getting more spiritually aligned and grounded in both your personal relationships and in your career. And I'll help you find and get clarity on where you'd like to be in the next few months and then work with you to craft a concrete, actionable game plan to get you there. So you can read a little bit more about that on my website, or if you want to book a session, you can go directly to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash apply. Again, thomasjbushlack.com forward slash apply, where you'll go directly to my calendar page to book your free session. All you got to do is pick a time that works for you, answer a couple questions to prepare for the call, and then just uh, answer your phone and show up at the time that you chose. 
All right. So again, the show notes page is thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 31. And with that introduction and invitation, let's get right into my interview with Dr. Matt Mumber. I am here with Dr. Matt Mumber, who practices medicine as a board-certified radiation oncologist with the Harbin Clinic in Rome. That's Rome, Georgia. Uh, He is a graduate of the two-year program at the Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation that was founded by Richard Rohr, where he studied primarily with uh, Jim Finley. So uh, Dr. Mummer has written several books, the most recent of which that's coming out on September 1, which this episode will probably be released after that, is his first book of poetry called In the Awakening Season. Uh, so that will be coming out very soon. His poetry draws on his personal, professional, cultural, and natural world experiences, stems from his practice of Lexio Divina and spiritual practice. So welcome to the show, Matt. Great to have you. And uh, what else do you want to say to introduce yourself to folks? Uh, I, I think you got a pretty good overview there. So I'll, uh, we'll just march right in from there. Okay, sounds good. So um, tell us a little bit about how you ended up doing the living school, because I think that it sounds like that was a, a point of kind of solidifying your practice. Yeah. Uh, and then the path that that's led you down. I'm sure there's sure. a story too that you can go back as far as you want. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad we have a little while to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was born and raised Catholic and um, never really uh, experienced much uh, depth uh, from my Catholicism education going through grade school and high school, but was always connected to it basically. And so deeply, if that makes any sense. Um, and so I was uh, called, I guess, to be a physician. Uh, the nuns, uh, when I was in Catholic school, you know, you take a test and you have a certain demeanor and they said, well, gosh, you'd make a great uh, priest. You know, you could be a priest, you could be a doctor, that type of thing. And so I was around. Those are your options, so, right? Priest, lawyer, or doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was pretty good options. Yeah. So they really <laughs> didn't go into the lawyer thing. I'm not sure why. I might have to go back and ask. But um, they, um, they said priest or doctor, and I was about 13. At that point, uh, priest was just basically impossible for a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> I cannot be a celibate Catholic priest. I just can't do it. Yeah. And so, uh, so that was it for that. And so doctor kind of filled in nicely. And, um, and the more I learned about being a doctor, the more I really resonated with it because I'm able to pretty much be with people in the time of crisis. I'm able to kind of shapeshift to a certain extent to, to meet their needs. Uh, and one of my big personality traits, which I found out later in the living school worth working through the Enneagram, which is one of Richard Rohr's uh, favorite, favorite exercises, mm-hmm. um, is that I have a need to be needed. So I'm kind of that helper type personality. Heart two. And uh, so- are you, are you a, Sorry, are you you're a two? I am a two, yes. Okay. And so- I'm married to a two? Pardon me? I'm married to a two. Oh, okay. And, and you are? A one. Oh, okay. Good, good. I'm married to an eight. Mm, so, yeah. yeah, which Richard says is very unusual. Usually it's the other way around that the male is the eight and the female is the two. Just mm-hmm. so it's been, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and that gets us on a whole other, but we could talk about that forever. <laughs> yeah. Which we've covered in previous episodes, but <laughs> not every, maybe not everyone's familiar with it, but no, I yeah, just, yeah. so I kind of stumbled along pre Enneagram for many, many years and uh, went through medical school, was really going to quit actually after the first year um, because it was so much not 
people. It was all just science, memorization, regurgitation, which of course you have to do to get into medical school, you know, so you jump through the hoops. Um, but I thought it'd be different. And so uh, fortunately I ran across a book called Love, Medicine and Miracles in my first year of medical school written by a guy named Bernie Siegel, who was a pediatric surgeon. And he was kind of, in my mind, he's kind of one of the pioneers of the mind-body connection. He worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And so his books were all about how it's not the disease that's important. It's not curing that's important. It's the person who has the disease. And then the work is the work of healing. And how do we engage the whole body, mind, and spirit to basically work with people, to, to work with whatever illness they happen to have. And so I sought him out very aggressively, found him and got to be good friends with him and uh, have stayed connected with him for years. And so it's one of these things that they kind of lead you to people, different teachers. So Bernie led me to Thich Nhat Hanh. He gave me, uh, told me about Ty's book, Pieces Every Step. Again, just awesome book. Uh, at the University of Virginia, I formed a group that was kind of patterned after Bernie's uh, group for exceptional cancer patients. And I was a group for exceptional medical students. And so we met and talked about uh, different types of healing, different forms of medicine, complementary and alternative medicine, back when all that was really considered crazy. Um, and so I got to know a good number of folks doing that, went through medical school, went through residency, and then got into private practice, did a two-year fellowship at that time with Andrew Wiles program at the Program for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. And so that linked me with uh, Rachel Remen, who uh, was a physician who was working with a nonprofit called Commonweal uh, that helped to, it was basically studied by Bill Moyer's Healing in the Mind. Um, and so uh, they did a big episode about how cancer patients would go on these retreats and they would heal themselves and they'd have these fantastic remissions. And so I went out and worked with Rachel to learn how to run these cancer support groups and then also went out and worked with Rachel and learned how to run physician support groups and retreats. And so I started doing physician support groups, retreats. Um, as a part of that, I, I also have always had a real connection to the natural world. And so uh, ever since I was a kid, I kind of remember um, being an Indian guide instead of a Boy Scout <laughs> in Pennsylvania. I remember these big giant bonfires, and so I, I've always liked fire, so I guess that was a good association. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, I ended up seeking out, and as a part of the integrated medicine program, I had sought out and found a Native American medicine man there because that was one of the type of integrative or alternative systems they talked about and had you experience. And so um, I found a Native American medicine man here in Rome, which is one of kind of the interesting spots in Native American culture and history. It's kind of where the Trail of Tears started. Um, and so we started, uh, we, I was fortunate enough to find some land that I built into a small retreat center. And we started doing Native American sweat lodges. And I started training with a Native American medicine man to run sweat lodges. So formed a nonprofit called Cancer Navigators to kind of house all these complementary alternative methods that then progressed into offering uh, what we call patient navigation nowadays. Back then, it was kind of not around. Um, and then as a part of that, I worked with some folks that Commonweal had referred. And so we started doing more and more retreats and groups and as I kept repeating that, you know, it's like Jim Finley always says on the path to awakening, 
um, uh, repetition is not redundancy, go deeper. And so I just kept going deeper and deeper. And then my brother-in-law gave me a set of uh, a CD on Richard Rohr's Adam's Return. And so at that point I, in my career as a radio oncologist, I was driving back and forth to a center about an hour away. And so I just listened to these CDs. And that's where I ran into Richard's teaching and Jim Finley's teaching. And as a part of that, then Richard said, hey, we're doing this two-year living school thing. And so I had been kind of one of the first people to be in the two-year Arizona fellowship thing. So I said, hey, this seems like a great idea. So let's do it, you know? And so that's how, it's a long story, but that's how I got into the living school uh, for action and contemplation. And then uh, that led me to really connect, I guess, ultimately with all three of the teachers, Richard Rohr, Cynthia Bourgeau, and, and Jim Finley. But I think Jim and I connected on multiple levels for multiple reasons, but I think he's also my guess a two on the Enneagram mm. and he's just a very heartfelt guy and his um, teachings and his writings uh, really just resonated with me, uh, you know, tremendously. And so I've continued to stay in touch with him and actually started writing a book with another colleague from the living school about Jim's teachings. And as a part of that, those teachings, I kind of went back to doing some other writing uh, when I, from when I was in college, which was poetry writing. Um, and then I kind of combined that with a practice of Lexio Divina that was basically fin, Finley's way of Lexio, Lexio Divina. So he had kind of molded it to, to work within his you know, system. Of course, he was a Trappist monk and Thomas Merton was his spiritual uh, guide while our spiritual um, mentor while you're director or something yeah a spiritual director right and so um, so anyway that's kind of my lineage you know you got the you got the kind of jim finley thomas merton richard Rohr, cynthia bourgeau christian lineage you've got the grandfather red wolf um native american sweat lodge you know lakota tradition you got um Thich Nhat han all the way back to the buddhist tradition and then um yeah so that kind of, <laughs> kind of made me where i am <laughs> that's that's amazing uh yeah good thing we have time to unpack that <laughs> yeah it's, it's hey, so rich you do it you do be a great service if you could unpack it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well we'll do what we can uh, we use the term uh, the term interspirituality comes up a lot on the oh podcast. i like that yeah uh, which is becoming i think a little more common term to talk about um the the shared truths across traditions i mean richard talks about this as the perennial tradition yes Just use that that term uh and a lot of people i think find themselves kind of like you described it you know it's not like at least as what i heard and what you were saying you know you you grew up catholic it's that you were you didn't really reject it but you also didn't feel like you were given a lot of meat and potatoes to kind of sink your teeth into but you found it um, and you found that, that, that tradition, your home tradition, if you will, enriched by all these other traditions um, without, without having to sort of leave or like flip between one and another, right? And I think that, that what I've seen is that many, most people who really go deep into a practice, um, that they have a sense of what their, their native practice and tradition is, and they allow that to be nourished by people like Tikhanat Han and a Lakota uh, healer, you know? Yeah. 
So that that resonates, I think, with the uh, the way a lot of people experience it today. Yeah, and it makes sense too because you, you know, just thinking about just the physical reality of it. You know, the, if you go to depth, you know, let's just say you go to depth of the earth. You know, the depth of the earth, the very center of the earth, is the very center of the earth for everything on the earth. <laughs> you know, so it's it kind of touches everything. Yeah, or if you really want to kind of play with your mind a little bit, uh, how I've heard physicists talk about how there there is no center of the universe, and every point is the center of the universe yeah, yeah. <laughs> at the same time. I love, I love that. Yeah. Okay, so I think I want to go, I want to pull on the, the thread around the time you spent with the Lakota train because, I, I mean, I guess I haven't, I, I've spent a little bit of time, uh, like at Pine Ridge, I had some friends that lived there for a while, and that's been my only experience with the Sweat Lodge. Mm. I haven't really met a lot of, you know, non-First Nation people that sort of get in, right? Uh, so what was that experience like with you in terms of? Well, let me tell you about the first time, actually. That's kind of an interesting way to, to give you an intro to it is when I was in medical school doing that group for exceptional medical students, I found a Native American medicine man who was in Charlottesville. And I said, hey, would you come talk with our group? And so he did. And he said he, um, he was uh, uh, not a Native American guy. He was a white Anglo-Saxon guy that had had hard times and ended up living with a Lakota medicine man who was a grandfather mm. to teacher and he said so he became his student and uh, his name was Wolf and um, I never knew his real name <laughs> so, I don't know he, uh, well what is that's a good what is real right what? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah I never knew his, yeah, I guess <laughs> go into that so um, but he brought his grandfather's pipe that he was given by this medicine man to to do ceremony and so he said well why don't you all come out and uh, you know to the whole group why don't you come out and, and we're doing a sweat lodge on x and x day and be here there and every, you know here's the directions and this is of course pre you know google maps you know this is in the 80s right the mid 80s late 80s turn at the pine tree on the corner yeah yeah exactly so um so it was a real it was one of those you know it was a dark and stormy night right and so in Charlottesville, Virginia, and then so I got in my little Subaru and, you know, drove out there and I get there and you're in the middle of the woods and it was just pouring down rain, just massive amounts of rain on the way out there. And I was like, gosh, what am I doing? You know, it's crazy. Um, and so I get there and it, it literally was like the skies parted. It's the strangest thing. I go driving into this down this road where you take a left at a pine tree and you're driving down a dirt road. I had no idea where I was. And I come to this little teeny cabin in the middle of the woods in Virginia. And I'm just like, okay. So I get out and uh, go in. Of course, none of my fellow classmates came. You know, I was the only one. And so you know, walking in, a bunch of people that, you know, how like when you walk into a room, the record kind of goes screech. <laughs> it kind of turns around. <laughs> and that's kind of what happened. I walk in and fortunately, Wolf kind of sees me and he's, oh, somebody showed up. You know, so he goes over. He kind of orients me to everything and says, okay, here's, here's what the medicine wheel looks like, you know, where people sit for healing with the uh, rocks for the four directions and you know then he takes me around on this hill overlooking a pond and at this point the moon had come out 
brilliant full moon and there was this fire down down by the pond and kind of an igloo-like structure and he said well that's the lodge so and he kind of explained the ceremony to me as it was going to happen there was this gigantic guy there and i'm a pretty big guy i'm six four you know i swam at uva so i was pretty you know i, was, I felt like i was a pretty big guy this guy's yeah he was like andre the giant massive you know and so kind of this almost like archetypal figure and he said well i can't remember his name he said he's going to be the stone keeper <laughs> the fire I'm not gonna mess with the stonekeeper. Yeah, go there. You know, I just yeah. <laughs> you know, there were some rules. You know, where you you don't walk here, you don't walk there, you don't say this, you don't do that, and you know, we didn't. It wasn't a really rule heavy, um, but uh, but the people there were just you know kind of people you might want to say you would encounter on a really long hike out in the middle of the Appalachian Trail or something. They're just down to earth people just enjoying nature, that type of thing. So, and it was men and women. And so, uh, so he says, well, we're gonna get down there, take off all your clothes, you get in the lodge and it's completely dark and then they'll bring rocks in, there'll be several rounds. And one of the rounds you'll be able to ask the lodge leader a question. So if you think about a question you might wanna ask. I said, okay. So you get in there and of course, having no clothes on meant nothing because you couldn't see. I mean, I literally remember doing this in there. You know, it's like one of the first times in my life I can remember not seeing anything, you know, just yeah. complete and utter darkness. And uh, a good and then bring in one of these giant- Cloud of unknowing. What's that? A good metaphor for the cloud of unknowing. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. And that's the whole thing. It's like you're, the earth is your place of birth. You're being reborn. You know, so it's almost like the, the uterus, I guess, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And so he brings in this firekeeper, this massive guy that opened the thing. And he brings in this giant orangey red glowing stone and puts it right in the center. And everything kind of lights up a little bit, you know, because you can see from the red orange stuff. And you can kind of see everybody kind of hunkered around like this, you know, because the thing is not very big, right? Right. And so... Um, so then he takes some water and he, you know, says some prayers and, you know, just massively hot, just ridiculously, un- insanely hot, burning hot, really. And um, he says, if you're hot, just go to the earth, you know. And so you go, I literally just, you know, did this and was just kind of holding my head, and, you know, like that. And so, um, and it was very respectful. It was very it was difficult. I'm not going to say it wasn't, you know, it was, it was a physical challenge, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you go through, you know, multiple rounds when I was doing it back then, I didn't know what much of it meant until you got to the prayer, the, the asking a question around, which I was like, Hey, you know, this guy's, he said, he's plugged in. And that's what he said. <laughs> when you ask me a question, I'm plugged in to everything. So think about what you might want to ask everything. You know, and I said, okay, yeah. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I kind of, you know, thought a little bit about it, but it was pretty easy because I was there for that reason. And I just said, you know, when it came to me on my turn, because he had me kind of sitting by the door, I think he thought this kid's not going to make it. You know? He's going to jump out. Yeah. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was the first one to ask a question. And he said, okay, everybody ask a question. You know, and he said, you know, it's your turn. <laughs> so I said, uh, you know, how do I become a great healer? And uh, immediately he just, you know, it was like this, again, this response that was just, 
you know, he just said, in order to have uh, the power to heal, you have to have responsibility for the power to kill. Mm. Boom. And it just went like this, right? It, it was one of those responses when I hear things or when certain teachers say things, like when I've sat with Thich Nhat Hanh in retreat or I sat with Jim or I sat with Bernie or I sat with patients that are undergoing, you know, tremendous life suffering or whatever it might be. It's just some things just go right to the depth of you. And you can't, it just, it's like a, like a spiritual taser, I guess. <laughs> That's the only way I can explain it. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, and so, um, I don't really remember anything else that happened to tell you the honest kind of truth. The whole rest of the time we finished and everybody, we got out, we, you know, everybody put their clothes, again, very respectful, very quiet. Everybody had a little bit of something to eat. It was like a feast afterwards. And nobody said a heck of a lot of anything. And I said, at the end, I just said, you know, thank you. I appreciate it. And then I was very quiet and respectful. Everybody was. And, uh, and he was just washed out at the end. I remember that. I remember seeing him and he was just looked like he had, been just poor, you know, just, <laughs> yeah. Well, if he was channeling that. Yeah. Crazy, crazy. Yeah. And so, uh, so I just remember driving home and as soon as I got on the road, the rain came again, you know, I was like, what the heck does that mean? You know, cause it's so obvious what it meant like on a superficial level, you know, kind of, if you can't, uh, and at that phase of my career and in really every phase of my career as a doctor, if you don't know what you're doing, you can really hurt somebody. You sure. Know? And so you got to be competent. You know, a friend of mine uh, once said the first C in caring is competence. And, and it is. You got to be competent. But I just wasn't, that, it didn't, that didn't like account for the spiritual taserness of it, you know? And so I just kept thinking, no, that's not it. I don't know what it is. But that, it gets it, but it's not it. And I just kind of kept sitting with it for literally weeks, you know? And I, I would exercise by swimming, and I was swimming one day. And, you know, that's a very meditative practice, you know, sure. like the line on the bottom of the thing, you know, you just got to look. <laughs> and so I just remember thinking, you know, you can't have healing unless there's, there's killing involved. You can't have one without the other. They're, they're different sides of the same coin. And I was like, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I said, yeah, it, it is both. I mean, it is both. And it's that typical thing. It's, you know, the work of healing, and this is where the depth of it has come in for me over the years, the work of healing is very difficult, you know, because that word kind of, it, it, could, it, could, it can get kind of a, like a, like a, like a superficial contextual frame to it that sounds like it's wonderful, you know, like heal the world, you know, oh, this is such a healing conversation, you know. Um, where the actual work of healing is most often very, very difficult. And so that state has stayed with me to this day. It's framed up a tremendous amount of kind of learning, depth learning. For example, uh, later in the program, Integrated Medicine, something that added to that depth was a book by Stephen Levine. Um, and he was a guy that worked with hospice patients. He was a um, uh, Buddhism practitioner again, and, and just a fantastic guy. Um, one of these spiritual giants, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, he, uh, he decided that he wanted to try to find out what it would be like if he just had one year to live like his patients so he could relate better. And so he said, okay, today is August 28th, 29th, whatever. Next August 28th, 29th, I'm going to die. And I'm just going to live 
the, my days over the next year really thinking that's going to happen. And so he put himself in that mindset. And every day he kept, you know, meticulous journals, really thought about it, kind of went deep on it. And then he wrote a book called A Year to Live, which is just a fantastic reflection on that period of time. And in that book, kind of in the kind of beginnings introduction part, he said, if there is a single definition of healing, it is to look with mercy and awareness on those pains, both mental and physical, that we have dismissed in judgment and dismay. Uh, and I'll say that again. because Yeah, I was going to ask you to say it again. It's another spiritual taser. But yeah. if there is a single definition of healing, it is to look... Okay, I'm saying it again. I started thinking about it. If there is a single definition of healing, it is to look with mercy and awareness at those pains, both mental and physical, that we have dismissed in judgment and dismay. So that is not easy work to hold things, you know, with mercy, with awareness that we would rather not, you know, we would rather just kind of say, you know what, too much, you know, whether it's trauma, whether it's, you know, experiences that we've judged of ourselves being evil or bad or whatever it might be, uh, you know, whatever those things are that made us kind of push it away to be able to allow ourselves the space to hold them. And kind of the way I think about it, treat ourselves like we would our own grandchild you know, with that kind of merciful awareness. Um, that's very difficult work. And that includes kind of both that healing and killing part uh, at depth. And it's completely different than curing, completely different than fixing. Right. Yeah, that was kind of going to be my question is, you know, how is that, how do you bring that into the modern practice of medicine, which is so focused on the yeah. sense of curing? Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the fixing part, thank God, thank God we can you know, fix a broken arm, right? Thank God we have radiation that can, I can aim it at a cancer, a cancerous tumor, and we can, you know, make it go away. Uh, but thank God also that, uh, you know, when those things work or when they don't work, there is always the possibility for a depth of healing to take place that can support that. And even in the hospice setting, let's say, where most of modern medicine, you would say, might think of uh, death as the enemy or death as a failure. Well, healing can take place when curing cannot. And so the healing aspect can also complement and enable the curing aspect because in my experience, healing gets into kind of what I've spent my career really looking for if I were to frame it up. And that is, how do we lay the groundwork for transformation? And so how do we um, approach becoming something of which we have no idea what it might be, but we're open to allowing it? And how do we facilitate that transformational approach? So it's completely different than the translational approach of you have an expert, you have somebody who's receiving and you deliver it downhill, you know, uh, it's, it's more of that equal humanity level. So Rachel Remen 
often said or, and said during the uh, retreat training, and I always remember it. And, uh, she said, you know, you can, uh, you can fix something if it's broken. Uh, you can help another if someone's stronger and someone's weaker, but you can only serve at the level of common humanity. Mm. And that's where that transformational part can come into play, not just for kind of the typical patient and the typical doctor, but for us as people, we can help facilitate that, um, put ourselves in the way of it, let's put it that way, because ultimately whether it happens is not not up to us, right? Right, right, <laughs> so. yeah. And I also think too, in, in what I've seen in my own work and others is, it's not up to us and it also, when those kinds of healings come that may or may not involve fixing, yeah. it's, it's usually a dynamic process between all the people involved, the presence and the energy involved. And in some ways, when you're, when that's happening, it's like, you're just, you're sort of just showing up. And in your case, you've got very specific knowledge and tools and skill sets around radiation oncology. Mm-hmm. but it's like you're just kind of facilitating or, or being present to all that while it unfolds around you. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine you have experiences like that with your, with your patients. Yes. And what an incredible gift to them to be, you know, in a, in a therapeutic context like that where. Well, it goes both ways, you know, as a, sure. as, again, as a two, <laughs> as my Enneagram type, uh, for me, when I'm a healthy two moves to look like a healthy four, right? And yeah. that, create, that creative part of it. And so enabling and being a part of that transformative process is so creative, you know, and writing poetry for me, that process is incredibly creative. And so the, the writing poetry part, you know, again, the academic textbook part, the academic textbook I wrote was called Integrative Oncology Principles and Practice. And I was the editor. And so we had, you know, I don't know, 15, 16 different authors from around the country, Harvard, all these big institutions. And so I kind of wrote the frame up, you know, chapter, the principles, mm-hmm. and practice part, and trying to explain, you know, the uh, prevention, uh, supportive care and, and transformational, uh, transformational care, how, how it fits in there. And then uh, anti-cancer care, you know, so kind of that pyramid of approaches, but then trying to enable the fact that the transformational approach really comes into play mostly at the bottom of that pyramid, you know, where you're trying to, you know, eat, drink, move, manage your stress, live within your, who you really are, you know, become authentically who you are. That's really kind of where that transformational part helps. And it also just so happens to be the part where physicians are horribly unable to get people to do stuff, no matter how many times we tell them to do it, right? You know, so eat whatever, six to 10 servings of vegetables, you know, manage your stress and, you know, call me in the morning, right? So <laughs> that's, right. that's kind of the, you know, the whatever, the, the substitute for aspirin nowadays, it seems like. So, but how do you really engage people on that level? And it's just not easy. It's not. <laughs> I think something I've been thinking a lot about and working with people on is this idea that, um, you know, when you immerse yourself in a contemplative practice, and I want to circle back around to your own practice, but um, it's 
the stuff that maybe looks kind of cool, right? Or the, the, the marketing piece, right? Is, is all the stuff on the outside that like the results you get with your patients or that, but, but what's harder to explain is that all of that happens. It's not that you have different medical training than other doctors, right? But there's a different kind of presence and way of being that you're showing up in your work. Um, and I wonder to what extent you can articulate what that's like to bring that presence into the work, the, the vocation, the career that you have. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the best way I can tell it again is because to a certain extent I have sought out, you know, I've sought out all that other training as a way of grounding myself in the science of it. You know what I mean? So I could be sure. accepted by the professor. It's funny because I've done, I've done the same thing, business yeah. medicine, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very, and, and yeah. to a certain extent, same thing with the living school. So I could say, Hey, you know what? <laughs> yeah. you know, Jesus, you know the, Jesus uh, this is what I think Jesus said and, oh hey they think it too you know? so, right and so yeah same thing with medicine you know to a certain extent so um, but I, probably one of my best teachers hands-on medicine I think is still one of those things just like um, spirituality to a certain extent it's it's um, best taught as kind of like a, a transmissional event or an apprentice type of event, you know? And so, mm -hmm. um, again, that first year I was in medical school, I was thinking about quitting. I ran into Bernie's book and then I ran into this guy called Lewis Barnett and he was a family chair of the family practice, uh, uh, department, new division. Cause back then family practice was not a specialty, uh, yeah. just starting to be. And so he was an old country doctor that saw hundreds of people a day, did everything in South Carolina. And then he went back and became the chair of the department. And if anybody was ever sick or nobody could figure it out, they'd always send him to Dr. B. He was like famous and they'd go to him and they'd get better. And usually for not very good reasons. It just, yeah. <laughs> it just happened. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so I kind of glommed on to him, you know, I just kind of said, you know, teach me, teach me, teach me. You know? And so, um, and I remember hanging out with him uh, one time and um, I wrote a poem about this. I don't have it with me because it's really hard to describe, but, um, and we had gone to see a patient. It was the very first patient I'd ever seen. And uh, I remember sitting in his office. We had these big giant bookshelves behind him and he had his big white coat on all the way to the knees, you know, and my little white coat, my little lab coat, you know, with a medical student coat. And, um, and he had this one uh, cross stitch on his wall tiny cross stitch and it said children spell l-o-v-e-t-i-m-e and so he never said anything about it and i just kind of that was in my head and then he kind of sat down with me and he just kind of again i asked him the same type of question you know what what can i do to be a you what can i do to be a great doctor and, and um you know as he was talking with me his kind of bottom of his eyelids got real swollen and red and he was just he wasn't overtly crying but you could tell he was really heartfelt focused on me he was moved to to just and at first I thought hey this guy you know he thinks I could do it you know maybe he likes he thinks I'm a good guy but again <laughs> in in retrospect that was him modeling what that level of caring can do for another human being. Cause I felt so cared for and nurtured. And I walked out of there thinking, I'm not quitting medical school. This is the best thing ever. 
you know? And, uh, and, and, I, and it's just allowing myself to be fragile, allowing myself to be vulnerable, connects me to people in such a way that that shared connection does the work. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the only way I can really describe it, you know? And so all the training and the expertise gets you into the playing field, I guess. But then when you close the door with the patient there, that's what makes the difference. And I guess that's kind of, you know, and some days I'm good at it and some days I'm not. I'm bad at it, you know? Um, So, yeah. Human nature being what it is, we all probably relate to some days we show up present and other days not so much. And that's be a good a good lead in observation to a question about your practice. So you mentioned um, Jim Finley being a kind of a key teacher that you connected with at the CAC. And uh, you said something about his approach to Lexio Divina as being maybe distinctive. So yeah. uh, can you unpack that a little bit? I actually don't yeah. really know Jim as well, maybe as, as some of the others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so I guess one of those spiritual taser events for me with Jim, we're sitting there and I had heard him on the CDs and stuff. And I, so I knew this guy was the real deal, you know, but it's always different when you're in a room with somebody. And so mm-hmm. he's there, we were in our living school room and he said in this in the middle of his talk, and I'm just like, you know, kind of just so tuned in, you know? And, uh, he said, um, um, the infinite love that is the architect of your heart has made your heart in such a way that only infinite union with that infinite love is enough. <laughs> and it's like my, you know, multiple people, I think their heads kind of exploded at that point, you know? Yeah, just think on, ponder that for a few decades. Yeah. And they said, could, people were taking notes. It's, um, excuse me, could you say that again? <laughs> Slower. <laughs> he said it exactly that he did. He said it slower. He said the same thing. You know, if the, yeah. infinite, you know, the infinite love that is the architect of your heart has made your heart in such a way that only infinite union with that infinite love is enough. And it's just that yearning that I've had my entire life was real and it was yeah. good. And it was, it would, and, and it, that was okay. You know what I mean? It's so affirming. Oh, so affirming. Because the it was the other thing I got out of the living school, as well as the integrated medicine program, was this sense of community, connection, community, awareness. You know, I love that tree of contemplative practice. I know I'm going off topic on Alexia. I'm getting there. It's okay. I've got the tree right on my wall over here. So. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Connection, community, awareness. And, you know, it's it just brought all that in. And sitting there with Jim, I was like, yes. I'll do whatever this guy tells me to do, right? <laughs> so, yeah, awesome. And so I, yeah, of course, got his book, the Christian Meditation book. But more importantly, he said, okay, let me walk you through what I do for Lexio. And he told us all about Guigo, you know, the ladder to heaven. He was out gardening and he had this vision of the ladder to heaven, this contemplative practice that allow him to connect safely to the clouded unknown, right? And so Jim... It's kind of like me uh, to a certain extent. Well, I'm like Jim, maybe. I don't know. 
for somewhat similar in some ways. But, <laughs> you know, he has a lot of eclectic ways, mainly because Merton had those, you know. Sure. I mean, Merton sat with everybody from every tradition. He was not, he was very ecumenical. And so um, and people would come to Gethsemane and Jim would meet him. You know, the, the Thich Nhat Hanh came and, um, you know, all kinds of some Sufi uh, spiritual folks. And I think Mother Teresa was there with Merton back when he was there. And so, um, so, you know, Jim has, is rooted in that approach as well, I think. And yeah. so, um, so, you know, and he developed this over time for himself. You can tell he just did it. This is how he decided to do yeah. it. So he said, okay. And he knew all the Latin terms, which I don't, uh, you know, what is it? Meditatio. All those Lexio. Words. Yeah. Meditatio, oratio yeah. and contemplatio. I just know so. how, I just know how, he did it, and then I knew kind of what works for me, you know what I mean? Because I figured, well, if Finley can adapt it, <laughs> I can at least try, you know? I mean, what good is a practice unless you're using it, right? So, right, exactly. Um, so so um, he said, okay, you, you look at first for a source of beauty that you have not yet realized. And so that's that first step. The first so are we talking specifically here with praying with scripture in like traditional Lexio or? Yeah. You can use scripture. You can use any source that is reliable and that you can wonder. Nature is a good, reliable source. I mean, there's scripture. You can like Thich Nhat Hanh stuff. I mean, uh, personally, I, I've kind of go into things like Rilke's poetry, Mm -hmm. (laughs) poetry, uh, Rumi's poetry. (laughs) I mean, I consider them to be pretty reliable. Now, you know, I just feel like if something inspires and, touches and moves me and surprises me, then it opens something in me. And that's a good thing. That's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know it yet. I I may know it superficially, but I haven't really experienced it at depth. And the depth of whatever can be experienced is infinite. So it's a never-ending practice of returning to meet more beauty in whatever way I can, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so that's kind of that first step. How do I open myself to a source of beauty that I have not yet fully realized. And so that's that reading part. And then the you know, question yeah. why I do that is what jumps out at me, you know? Yeah. What, what is it that kind of resonates with me? And that kind of goes from the first step to the second step, which is what he, I think, calls discursive med- meditation, which yeah. is where you're trying to figure it out, right? Yeah. You're- so, yeah. so can, um, I, I, can I just interject something real quick? Because I think please, people yeah. listening might might not know what the hell we're talking about right now um, if they haven't done a lot of Lexio Divina. So I just yeah. put a put a note in to, to help orient people a little bit. Um, yes. Lexio Divina, you know, sort of classic traditional practice is a is a it's a Latin term that means holy or sacred reading. Yes. Typically done with a, a short scripture verse that you would choose and the first kind of step is to read it very slowly and contemplatively and then choose a word or a phrase that kind of grabs your attention. So um, what it sounds like Jim was sort of expanding on that is to say, and, and, and uh, that anything that, that catches your attention is in, in beauty can become a, a stopping point just like you would do with the text. Yes. 
to reflect on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, for example, instead of divine reading or Lexio Divina could be Visio Divina could be right. something you see, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think Cynthia Bourgeau also, uh, she also taught Lexio a little bit more traditionally than Jim. And so uh, I think I actually experienced it first with Cynthia and was loved it, you know, so, yeah. Um, so yeah. It, and so then that first rung of the ladder, like you mentioned, um, finding it. And, and I think it's also interesting that uh, to go back to kind of what you're talking about, the, the, that this is a traditional practice, right? And so this has been taught at Christian monasteries for centuries. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, it was never taught to like rank and file Catholic kids from grade school to high school. Yep. Why? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, what? Uh, gosh, where was, you know, because that would have been nice. <laughs> totally agreed. I just, I just happened to be surrounded by a lot of monks when I was in college and yeah. learned through osmosis because I was. Oh, wow. But yeah. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah, it was great. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, then the, the first step is that divine reading, the spiritual reading. The second step then that Jim elucidates is kind of that discursive meditation process. What does this mean? How can I, what is it trying to teach me type of thing? And then the question that he asked that I love is, if I were going to share this with another person, how would I tell them about it? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's where it kind of fed into the writing part the poetry writing, especially because sure, <laughs> yeah. I think of poetry writing as kind of writing in the service of the unwritable, you know, because it can't be ever real, really written. It can't, it's like saying things in the service of the unsayable. You just can't, there's it's no all metaphor. Yeah. 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 It's just so, you know, uh, it's like that, the old saying, you know, you can never catch the wild horses by running, but the only people that catch the wild horses are those that are running. Right. And so, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't make any sense and that gets into that world of the non-dual the you know there's they're not two but they're not one either you know and, and all these things the paradox and so anyway how could i explain this that's the second rung of the ladder so it's nice to have a ladder yeah when you're when you're living in this world of paradox and and you're building up to a world you're building up to a place that guigo wanted to get to that is in the clouded unknown where there's nothing but yearning and there's nothing but open-ended faith and no way of ever accomplishing anything. You can't, you're not going to go there and light a bunch of candles and ring a bunch of bells and pull your tomato plants and all of a sudden it's going to guarantee you to be enlightened, right? Or to somehow, you know, have the stigmata or do whatever it might, you whatever your, you know, whatever your plan is, you know? And so how do you stabilize yourself in that in such a way that you can do it even, you know? Yeah, it's I think that's... That's the key. That's the need for some kind of a practice that I, that I often use the, the image of it. It's, it provides a container for an experience that cannot be contained. Mm, I love that. Uh, but if we never use any kind of method or container, then it, we just kind of never get anywhere with it. In, in yeah. And I think it tends to get real, be real superficial then. Can be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Although sometimes people can spontaneously have it happen to them, you know, like Eckhart Tolle, you know? I That's mean, true. Yeah. There are certainly people <laughs> who seem to just yeah. have That's like... It's none of our business. It's none of our business. Yeah. Happens. We can put ourselves in the way of it, but it may never happen. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. 
I know. And that even letting go of that desire. Yes. Yeah. The path. Yeah. That's what, that's what, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would say Nirvana is. It's, uh, uh, extinction of all concepts, extinction yeah. of all concepts. There's nothing. There's just nothing. Um, and nothing is everything at the same time. <laughs> and here we are having a conversation about. <laughs> what a great place to be. It's a great line from Merton too. Like contemplation is the ultimate, like worthless activity in the eyes of the world. Yeah. You know. Yes. Oh, um, yeah. And yet, again, paradox, non-dual. It, it's the most important thing we do. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry, we got. So we were in. Yeah, step two, step two. And see, yeah. this is why you need to have a firm foundation. So all along, we go back to step one. We can, there's the spiritual reading right in front of us, the thing, the beauty we're seeking. And there's the, the next step of how we're going to share with another, both of them very concrete because we live concrete lives. If we can't put our life into our practice, our concrete life into our practice, then our practice is ungrounded and unrealistic and unlikely to benefit anyone. Yeah. Right? And so then the third step it, that is what I consider it to be. And I think this, I may be, I'm pretty sure this is still Jim, you know, but how do I bring more of this into my life? I want to ask to bring more of what I've felt is this beauty how, that I can share what it means with another, but I want to bring more of it in my life. Like, you know, help me, guide me, um, lead me so I ask for something to come into my life that's related to this beauty and to what it, what it really is speaking to me what it's trying to teach me and so that's that kind of asking prayer that's what I feel like is the kind of third step of the lexicon yeah. um, and so then at that point you know you kind of I, I've kind of started with something that's rooted in something I don't know I've tried to bring it into myself I've asked to bring more of it into myself so I'm kind of letting go stepwise into something that's bigger than me. And so then that fourth step, the, what most people would consider to be contemplation, I am basically in the clouded unknown and I am sitting there longing that infinite love, longing for that infinite love, the infinite union with that infinite love, right? And the whole time I'm there, when I find myself clinging and resisting to anything, I bring my focus back to just being there while the whole time along, I am constantly clinging and resisting everything, right? And so, <laughs> so I bring myself back over and over again. If it's a thousand times, a thousand and one times, I bring myself back to just being here noticing what's available, whether it's the breath, whether it's the body sensation, whether it's a sound, whether it's a thought, whether uh, it's an image, whether it's the echoes of the past or dreams of the future, whatever it might be. What it, and as, as they come up and they come and go and they fade away, I kind of watch them. But most of the time I'm going to cling to them. Most of the time I'm going to get attached like a, you know, it's almost like I'm at a train stop and in the middle of the road and I pull up to the train stop and the red light comes down and the little thing goes down, ding, 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 ding. And it gets right in front of it and there's that train and it's going by. And on a good day, the train just comes up. I see it coming. I see it around for a while and it goes away. On a day where on most days, I'd say most moments, I jump on that train and I'm riding for a while. 
And then I don't even know I'm riding until I'm gone, like a couple miles down the road. And I said, oh, <laughs> I got to bring myself back to watching it, you know, to observing it, to not clinging, not resisting and being compassionate with myself, being disciplined, being gentle um, and just being open to whatever's going to happen at that moment. That's that for me, that's that sitting in the clouded unknown. And when I have difficulties with that, uh, like really severe difficulties, I can go back. I can go back to asking. You know, I can go back to what this whole thing means to me, how it's shared. I can go back, which is important for me, to how I've shared part in a tube, right? And then I can go back to, you know, the beauty, the beauty. And just that that's kind of how it goes. And then uh, for me, uh, that becomes a part of like a, a poem. And it usually kind of writes itself as a draft that is, you know, almost indiscernible and then it just throughout a day or two it kind of I dream about it I think about it things come up you know it feeds it or whatever and then it just kind of and then I'll share it with people and they'll say yeah and <laughs> adapt it a little bit you know your wife is like what are you talking about yeah oh yeah oh yeah especially as an eight yeah uh, <laughs> yeah right let's get yeah, to the yeah. point yeah yes 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 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What do you try to understand? You got, you had me. And then all of a sudden. (laughs) So, yeah. Wow. That's kind of the long drawn out version of Lexio Divina as I understand it. Yeah. No, that's so rich. Uh, You know, I've, I've heard Keating, Thomas Keating and people talk about how centering prayer emerged as that point in the in that final move into contemplation, um, you know, of facilitating the process of of stepping into the unknown. But I think that the way you just described it is kind of the most that's ever made sense to me, or kind of made that connection between it. You know, and I, I just I tell you the things that ground it all for me is it feels the same way as I felt you know, in the middle of a sweat lodge, you know, where I just don't know who I am and or where I am and or what's going on. I don't know, you know, it grounds me in that not knowing in a way that is so humbling and vulnerable and sitting in front of Thich Nhat Hanh and watching him walk up and down the stage leading, like leading a meditation. I remember the first time I sat in front of him, he starts, he always, he starts these guided meditations, breathing in, I know that I am breathing in, breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. And I was really, I, I was really earnestly seeking to be with him, right? Because I'd read in this magazine, Parabola, I love this magazine. And um, it said, uh, it's better to sit and look in the eyes of an enlightened person than any number of teachings. So I said, well, I just got to find one of those guys, right? There are a dozen. Yeah. <laughs> so I, said, I, I read all this stuff. I was like, this guy's got it. I'm going to go sit with him and, you know, somehow or another. And so, so did you go to a plum village? No, I went up to uh, uh, a, a college up in New York called um, oh, stone, stone, something stone. Uh, All I can think of is stone hill college. Stone hill. Oh, hell yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Founded in 1943. I always remember that because when I was there after sitting with Thich on, I found a copper penny, laying in the middle of the road that had 1943 on it. It was the weirdest thing. 
and it's been there since the founding. Yeah. Well, no, I was wondering if like they leave them for people as like a promo. <laughs> like, we're just gonna mess with people and put these. Yes. Yes. It just was too that's perfect. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, breathing in. I know that I'm breathing in. He's walking back and forth, and then he said, uh, "For me, this was huge." He said, "Breathing in, I enjoy my in breath." Breathing out, I enjoy my out breath, and this was that was a major, another one that was right to the middle of me. I just, I just, I was sitting in the front row. Of course, I had my meditation cushion. I, I can't sit cross-legged. I was sitting cross-legged. I was, you know, on it, you know, and I've been working hard to do that because I'm not very flexible. He said that, and I just went like this. Yeah, I just, my, I couldn't help it. My my eyes opened. I just, and he, he was standing right there. He just looked right at me like this. You know, and I was just like, you probably saw the light bulb going off. Of like, I don't know. But I mean, it, it, I just, that, it changed my life that moment. I, it's okay to enjoy even just the breath. It's okay to, to, to just enjoy something as um, physical, as, you know, as simple as the act that I have nothing to do with. Again, it's completely given. I'm not doing it. It's just happening to me. It's okay to enjoy that. And God, it just sunk in. It still sinks in. It just, it, it sinks in to this day. And um, uh, so that, that same level of that wonder, that mystery, that not knowing, that's kind of what that Lexia practice brings to me as well. And then, um, I mean, I've just been very, I think I've just been very fortunate to have, um, you know, really good teachers ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. It seems too that those of us raised in a Western predominantly Christian, um, culture are not often told that it's okay to enjoy the human body and the experiences that we have. Uh, we're more often, we're more often told that we should fear it and, subdue it and get rid of it. Even the contemplative life sometimes gets filtered through that, um, which is an aberration of the tradition, but it happens. Yes. We need to be reminded. And not only that, but like, you know, take it a step further. It's not only is it okay. That's what God wants. Yeah. Wants that for me, for you. Yeah. Wants us to live. Yeah. Live our life. (laughs) And enjoy it. Yeah, on, we've, there's a physical part to it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And if you go to the depth of it, if you go to the depth of the physical, you go to the depth of the mental, emotional, you go to the depth of what we would call the soul or the spiritual, it's all, everything meets. You know, it's like Einstein said, you know, there's a place where the poet and the scientist and the philosopher all meet. Mm. Who said that? Einstein. Oh, Einstein, okay, cool. Yeah. Do the theologians get to come or am I out? <laughs> I think I think he did say priest in there too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not a priest. That's different. Uh, it's kind of the same thing, I think. That's theology right. and philosophy are cousins. <laughs> I think he did have that in there. I probably got it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. This is the gist of it. <laughs> no, I got I got the right idea. But it, it is that sense, like, you know, the title of, of Richard's book of Everything Belongs. We all oh, sort of meet yeah. there. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to share? It's just been so rich. 
No, it's been fun talking. I, 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 um, no, it's been great. Thank you so much for talking. It's always wonderful. Again, for me, this is that life affirming connection community that, you know, as much as the format, the technology, I think can be somewhat of a, a barrier somehow because it's yeah. so dimensional it allows this kind of conversation to take place which is pretty awesome so it is and i you know occasionally get to hear from people that are out there engaging it and feeling that that community as well and supported by it yeah i appreciate what you're doing thank you yeah well thanks for all your that you're doing in in the world <laughs> the, the healing work mm-hmm so I have, I mentioned this before, I have a couple of questions I like to ask every, every guest. This is a fill in the blank, kind of a Rorschach block test. <laughs> okay. so, but, but a low pressure one. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. How would, you, how would you fill in the following phrases? Contemplation is. <laughs> uh, I would say contemplation is awareness. The purpose of contemplation is all about. <laughs> I don't want to be a broken record, but <laughs> <laughs> awakening. Yeah, that's all right. You've, you know what you've got uh, it honed in on too. You'll answer the same again, but is there a word or a phrase that captures the heart of your contemplative experience and practice? Hmm. I think I would have to go with healing on that one, healing, and at, at the depth level, the word healing. Yeah. That may or may not involve curing. Mm. Yeah, that is not easy. No. But moving towards that experience of infinite union with infinite love. Yeah. And I think the only way to get there is to realize that we don't know, I don't know, and I don't, uh, I don't, a lot of times I don't know what's best for me. Yeah. 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 But showing up and being, being willing. That's a good, that's a good reminder. Yeah. What is your hope for the next generation of contemplative practitioners? Um, I would say that uh, community aspect, the more visible community, you know, the, um, I remember this quote, I think it was from Martin Luther King or maybe, anyway, it was uh, the beloved community. I, I don't see it yet, but I know it's there, you know, um, that this type of interaction will not be uh, unusual, that there will be a community in place that will serve people in such a way that they can go to the depth of not knowing deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, let's build those communities or just show up and allow them to be built. Yeah. It's a tough job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most people would prefer to know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, isn't that the fundamental, that's the challenge of, all of the temptations to different kinds of fundamentalism mm, that's so good. that we all fall into at different at different times. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Mm. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and your experience, your, your wisdom and practice. It's been a pleasure. It's been great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to episode 31 of Contemplate This and my interview with Dr. Matt Mumber. Again, you can learn more about Matt, his poetry, and his work on integrative medicine on the show notes page at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode 31. That's episode 31 with no spaces. I also put up the image and a link to the tree of contemplative practices that we discussed in this interview so you can see what he's referring to as well. And as I also mentioned, you can learn more on the show notes page about those free breakthrough sessions that I'm offering to those of you who are interested, or you can just go straight to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash apply to schedule yours today. If you're interested in coming up with a game plan to get out of feeling constantly overwhelmed and deeply centered in your practice and aligned with your inner wisdom and core purpose or intention in life, then I would love to talk with you on one of those sessions and help you get a lot of clarity around what that might look like. There were some really inspiring stories and quotes that Matt shared in this episode, and I want to leave you with that beautiful quote that he quoted from Jim Finley. The infinite love that is the architect of your heart has made your heart in such a way that only infinite union with that infinite love is enough. The infinite love that is the architect of your heart has made your heart in such a way that only infinite union with that infinite love is enough. I will leave you with that beautiful quote, and may you find that sense of love, of union, of enough in your contemplative practice, and may you let it shine out through your heart, through your entire being, and bring it into everything you do. Peace, and until next time, God bless. 